This week on the podcast, I have an extra special guest. His name is Abid Jan Mohammed, and this is just a masterclass in all things concerning growing and understanding how to value media and technology businesses. He has an extensive background in advertising and digital media. He was the first digital commercial officer at many notable companies. He's helped build Radium One. He's been a a board advisor and non-executive director at some of the hottest technology and media companies around. If you are interested in how to value a business, who the best buyers are out there, how to build a team, the power of data to transform businesses, then you will find this conversation absolutely fascinating. Just one of the most knowledgeable people I've ever heard speak on the topic of M&A. An absolutely fascinating episode. I learned a ton of stuff from speaking to Abid. Really interesting career from pricing, investment strategy, experience across ad tech, martech, blockchain and IoT. So without me keeping you in suspense any further, my conversation with Abid Jan Mohammed. Abid Jan Mohammed is the founder and director of Vogel. He is an experienced C-level executive and board member with demonstrable history of working with startups and high growth businesses. He has extensive experience in business development, revenue operations, commercial strategy, pricing and investment strategy, experience across ad tech, martech, blockchain, IoT, sports sponsorship, and information and data security. I'm very much looking forward to the conversation. Abid Jan Mohammed. Welcome to Agency Dealmasters. Thank you, Nathan. Uh, it's a real privilege to be invited and be involved. I'm really looking forward to the conversation. Yeah, absolute pleasure speaking to you. We've, we've had this in the diary for a few weeks now, and for one reason or another, we've not been able to make it happen. So I'm, I'm glad that we've, I've been able to corner you down. Um, <laughs> Uh, I think the last time we uh, the last time we had to cancel because of my fractured ankle. But there you go. Right. Um, yeah. It's, uh, it's all it's all it's all healing, and uh, hopefully be back on the sports field fairly soon. Good stuff. Good to hear. Well, we'll 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 talk about your your sports background in a moment because your career and background is absolutely absolutely fascinating. You've held leadership roles in media businesses like ESPN, SaaS businesses. You've been a non non exec director and, and board advisor to many businesses, large and small. In 2002, when you graduated from Oxford Brooks in 2-1 in business operations, did you ever think your career would progress and develop in the way that it has? It's uh, a good question. Um, not really. Um, I guess I always wanted to get into marketing, media, uh, sports marketing. Um, but when I graduated, I had a Kenyan passport, which sort of made for a bit of an uncertain start, um, partly because I didn't really, I didn't have the sort of I didn't um, have the right to remain in the UK and had to prove myself to the home office uh, that I was able to get sponsored and get work mm. visas. So there was a, a few sort of early teething problems and challenges at the start of the career. I ended up mainly, I mean, you talk about sport, but mainly through sport, actually. Uh, I ended up uh, meeting someone who was looking for a graduate in the city. So I ended up starting my career trading energy, which was uh, with hindsight, quite a good start to my and a great learning experience to my career, um, because it kind of gave me structure and discipline, um, for which really I kind of I'll always be grateful for that. And also at the time that I was in the city, there was a you know we were going through quite a lot of change and there was quite a lot of there was a big transition from floor based trading in the open outcry floors on the on the energy markets in St Catherine's Dock to actually screen based trading. 
Um, so that, you know, obviously very similar to, well, effectively, uh, you know, being on, uh, being on big trading screens and a lot more sophisticated, a lot more data driven, mm. but that was a massive learning experience for me because it, uh, it really, and it really helped me when the media industry turned and transitioned to programmatic trading in 2010 to 2014. Um, so it was almost like my career kind of coming full circle, um, mm. which was really interesting. But so having seen that, having seen that shift once and then seeing it again, I remember being on a panel at Advertising Week in 2012. Um, and I remember talking about this, you know, how the ad market needed to move towards a financial markets type model. Uh, regulated, you know, regulated framework and all of that. So actually when it did happen, I thought, Wow, um, I've been here before. I know what it felt like, and actually, you know, this that experience kind of helped me uh, as I move forward. Um, and I guess the last over the last five years, I think you know the principles that I learned during that that stage in the city because it is very different to the media and advertising world. Um, I think that really kind of has, has sort of stood me in pretty good stead as I sort of move as I've moved throughout my career. Hmm. But I sort of roundabout way to getting to where I am today um, partly because of you know things that were out of my control when I started so how do you go from a career in the city to the world of media advertising and creativity today well I guess I think having spent well I, I'm a people person um, you know for me relationships are really important um, in everything I do and that's always been the case. Um, I think what I learned in the city was, as I said, the structure, structure piece and the discipline of actually being, a, you know, being able to follow like market open, market close, all of those, all of those types of things. I think the data piece as well, um, mm. as I started to learn more, you know, start to get deeper into trading and start to learn more about the, the effects of, of various forces on the market. I think that really, again, you know, as we've moved, as the industry, the advertising and creative industry has moved more towards kind of a data-driven approach, I think a lot of those things that I did in my formative years have actually started to come back, um, and I've, start, I've sort of found found a lot of that a lot of that piece really interesting. Um, you know, the shift from creative to um, sorry, from sort of from financial world to a creative world. Because I because of the fact that I'm more of, that I actually enjoy being around people and. I like trying to problem solve. Um, I think that's that's uh, that's made it easier. But I guess it just goes to prove that you know it doesn't you know where you start doesn't doesn't necessarily um, have a huge impact on where you kind of finish. I guess. Sure, sure. Everyone's got these portfolio careers these days. Uh, <laughs> in in 2011, you become the commercial director of Europe for Radium One. Uh, they offer display, mobile, video, and, and social advertising services. What were your biggest takeaways from that experience? Well, I guess that was a so that was a that was that came just on the back of um, having spent sort of nine months uh, at Trinity Mirror in sort of traditional um, traditional press, um, and actually you know being their first digital commercial director, um, which was a really interesting time. You know, post ESPN, um, and then in that in a sort of transition at Trinity Mirror with the sort of Boston Consulting Group in residence, if you like, at the time. Um, Radium One was really interesting because it was a sort of the, the third, uh, the third start, you know, the third time that uh, Gabash Chahal had sort of had kind of come to the fore. Um, and he, you know, I don't know if you if you know, know of him. No. He uh, he founded um, two other startups. Um, one was called Click Agents, which he, which he sold for about forty million. And then the sort of the, he was the pioneer of behavioral advertising with Blue Lithium, which he sold to Yahoo for three hundred million in mm. two thousand seven. He's done okay. Yeah, he's done okay, and this was the sort of the third incarnation of of, of Gabash. And you know, he's 
he was you know he was a a real a really interesting entrepreneur to work for um he had an incredible understanding of how the consumer thought um so reading one was very much about you know bringing social data and and taking that next shift on from behavioral advertising and it was right at the start of the programmatic um trading curve and we were, we were a little bit ahead of everyone else but the key takeaways for me was literally by miles was the importance of culture um i'd worked for espn who were very good at making the world making you believe that the world starts and finishes at espn they were brilliant they were kings of culture but but uh, radium one the culture and values that we had as a team globally and that we built um around built the team around were, were unbelievable and every single one of us doesn't matter which office we were in we we're pretty much bound by this very very strong culture and it was a really core part of our success um, you know, we saw we went from, you know, we grew significantly quarter on quarter. Um, and I look I look back at it, and I think, did we have the best technology? Our technology was pretty good, but it wasn't mm. the best. Um, but we had the best people. Our people were unbelievable. Um, and it was a really, really good um, for me. That was a really good lesson. Um, and if I look, look forward now to what I do today, advising, you know, early, st- early stage businesses, the importance of culture and value as a foundation is really, really important um, as, as businesses, you know, start to scale, you know, want to look to try and scale from something. Um, and I think also my role evolved quite a lot at Radium One. You know, I started off as I was, you know, the first hire in the UK um, and then, you know, helped build the UK, the UK team and then started to open up some of the um, other European teams. So France, Nordics, Benelux. Um, and as the business evolved, I, I was, you know, my role was, was changing alongside the business. And I think the role that really helped me get to where I am today um, was really was when, was when I was asked, can you help us try and work out how to make money tomorrow? Which mm-hmm. for a sort of a 30, a 30 something, you know, early 30 someone, you know, that for me, that thought that's, that's a little bit like a minister without portfolio type role. <laughs> but it was actually fascinating because it was a cross between sort of business development, sales, and strategy. Um, and I was able to, you know, to be able to influence and and be part of a lot of the kind of the, the commercial direction of the company, but also the overall business direction. Um, so it made a huge difference to you know it helped me it helped me change the way I thought a little bit. Having always been in a you know running a sales team at ESPN, building you know. You know, focusing on 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 build on on selling to agencies or selling to brands to then suddenly be in a role that was slightly different, where actually working out how do we build a business around data um, and what does that actually look like? Um, how do we talk directly to clients, but we don't, but not talk about media? Um, so it really, you know, what sort of acquisition do we need to make? Are there any acquisitions that we can sort of tuck into the proper, you know, to the business that will give us extended capability? So I learned a huge amount during that that period. Um, which I think I look back on now, and I think you know those two and a half years, three years doing that, doing that role, you know, on how to make money tomorrow. I think that really has, uh, has sort of set me, really set me up well for you know for my career today. Really interesting. Well, let's drill into that in, in some detail. Then, I mean, the first thing that you talked about was the importance of culture, uh, which is super, super fascinating. I, I just got finished reading the book of the former CEO of, of Disney. Um, I'm blanking on his name now, but he was responsible. Bob Iger. Bob Iger. Yeah. Really, brilliant autobiography. Yeah. Just a fantastic CEO as well. And he, you know, he stresses the importance of culture. So many CEOs and, and, and leaders do. I'm interested to know when, I mean, you said that it's important in the founding story of any uh, entrepreneur or, or, or a startup. 
if you haven't got a really good culture from the beginning, is it possible to set in building a culture retroactively? Or do you have to have that stellar culture from the beginning as a founding part of your story as the entrepreneur? Uh, I guess so. I mean, I, actually, Bob Iger is interesting because I was at Disney when Bob was CEO, um, so I I, I I know I know what uh, what ESPN were owned by Disney, so I know exactly what you're, you know what he's referring to. Yeah. Um, is it possible to 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 sort of retrofit? It is. Um, there are companies that have done it, and I think you know I, I always look back to um, when uh, Peter Thiel uh, invested in Airbnb. Um, and Brian Chesky asked him, so based on the fact that you've just uh, invested a, a significant amount of money uh, in my business, um, what would you recommend? Like, can you, have you got any advice? Um, and there's a great open letter, um, which you can just Google, um, which is fantastic. And, it, and basically, Peter Thiel says one thing to him, and that is, don't F up culture. Mm. You know, for him, for him, culture was was you know a really core part of you know of, of the growth of any business. And I think you know I look at it and I think you can retrofit it. Um, it's more difficult the bigger you get and the more uh, the further away from the kind of the core um, you get, if you like. So as the business gets post twenty, post thirty people, it can get very difficult to retrofit it. I think if you're at that sort of you know pre twenty, um, it's quite it, it is you can you can start to you know, bring that together and actually make it work. Um, I just think you need to you need to avoid it. Try it. It's difficult to do when you get a little bit too big. So what does a good culture actually look like? Um, you know, aside from the fact that people aren't punching each other and, and arguing in the hallways, that's probably a, quite an effed up culture yeah. in, your, in, your, in, your, in your vernacular. But how do you know when you've got a really good culture? What are the markers? What are the milestones? What does that look like? Well, I think one that's really easy to implement is where there's a real, you know, clarity around it. So, you know, for me, uh, I look at it, and I'm, I was actually just going through a culture, a culture and values process right now for a uh, for a client. And um, one of the things, you know, they had seven or eight different, uh, you know, value sets, and a lot of them were quite confused because they were all saying the same thing but in a different way. Um, and I think ultimately, if you if you want to build culture into your organization, you've got to be able to build it into everything you do, from hiring people to the way you operate today as a, as as individuals and also as a company and as a team. Mm. But then also, as you go out there and try and hire people, you need to make sure that that's a, a really core cool part of how you're hiring people as well. So based on your culture and value set. Um, so really, it's got to be they've got to be really simple. Um, they've got to be measurable in some way. Um, so it's easy to sit there and say, right, okay, if, I, if, we, if we have a culture of accountability and autonomy, um, how, do we, how do we actually measure that? Um, is it easy for us to do that? Um, so that, for me, you know, it, you know, there's a lot of companies try and have too many, um, and they'll look at the likes of Amazon, and they'll look, you know, they, they, lots of people look online and go, oh, you know, so-and-so's got 14 values, so-and-so's got this many values. Sure. Um, actually, it's really important for you to you know, think about what is it that you as a CEO or you as a founding team stand for, and what are your what do you want your company to be known for uh, ultimately from a value from a value standpoint, and then what's going to make it attractive for other people to come to, to to that company. And I think you know more and more now, and COVID's kind of created this this whole concept of you know autonomy, trust, empowering people. You know, the fact that we're all remote now, and there's a lot of organisations that are going to think about moving to a remote working style the the power the power of culture is going to be a key driver of success um you know i think covid has really 
accelerated this because when you're not in front of somebody um, or you're not in an office and I can't just sort of put my hand up and shout across the office hey Nathan can you you know give you know give uh, give David a call back or whatever it is because um, you can't do that that sort of water cooler moment's gone um, so actually being able to have a real culture of trust where people feel comfortable around each other um, and they feel comfortable calling each other out as well um, is a really is going to be a, a kind of core driver of success for a lot of tech on a lot of entrepreneurs as they start as they start their journeys really interesting let's let's talk a little bit about vogel vogel was created to help good ideas become great ideas smart solutions attract more customers and use deep experience to deliver healthier businesses essentially what problems are you solving for your customers so you know we're we we don't like the word consultant but sadly according to companies house we are consultants <laughs> Check a box. um but we're really kind of we're, we're, we're different because we're essentially um in fact one of my so my one of one of my original partners way back um and was my old cmo he used to call us extrapreneurs um okay. which i quite like um and effectively what we are you know what we do is we are we're, we've, we've all worked for um or built businesses um, we've all been in the sort of startup space and we understand the sort of the challenges and what you go through. Um, and what we are is we're execution focused. So rather than just sit there and produce nice reports, what we're effectively doing is we're producing, um, we're helping you execute on your growth plans. Um, so help you identify the right strategy, work, co-create that with you because ultimately it's your business. It needs to be your strategy and we'll work with you to get, to get that strategy out of your head and put it down in, in, in a workable format create a growth plan and then work with you to execute that growth plan over the course of 6 12 18 months depending on how long how long it takes and depends on how long you want to engage us for um so in most in most instances um that we will do we will do you know individual bits of work so when we get asked by you know VCs or private equity to do some pre-investment due diligence for example or pre-acquisition due diligence uh, we can do that as a one-off project a lot of times we'll work with VCs who will ask us to um to come on board and help one of their portfolio companies from an operational standpoint. Um, and that could be to do with, you know, they might have had a bump in the road, for example, um, or they might, you know, they might be making an acquisition um, and they might need some help putting two business models together because we've got the operational experience of being able to do that. Um, that put, that's essentially what we get asked to try and to try and do a lot of the time. Um, we've also, the makeup of the team includes a CTO. It includes people with data experience and it also includes people with deep commercial experience as well. So we're able to sort of come at come at a problem from three or four different angles, um, which is different to other people. Um, you know, having a genuine CTO uh, who's built systems makes a huge difference because actually there are efficiencies that we'll see in product um, that will make a commercial impact very quickly. And having that sort of two sides of the same coin type approach um, is, is, is key. On top of that, we've also created a, uh, a program for, for the sort of between seed and series A companies, um, which is really interesting. Um, and it's basically aimed at um, you know, helping nurture those companies uh, mm. through their journey. Um, and you know, with a view to effectively you know, being, being partners of theirs um, as, as, they, as they develop so that they can you know, look to us to support a lot of their decision-making, to validate some of that decision making, you know, throughout their journey, and it's almost a precursor to, uh, you know, non-exec work, and also potentially M and A further down the line. So, so what do ideal clients for Vogel look like? Presumably, tech-focused. Um, you need to manipulate a lot of a lot of data. Um, quite entrepreneurial, sort of growth mindset-focused as well. 
Talk about what a typical client looks like in terms of industry, uh, service offering, et cetera. And second part of the question is, what problems do they typically experience and how do you help solve them? Okay, so typical typical kind of client um, is yeah technology-based, technology-focused. We're, sort, we're pretty sector agnostic now. Um, we started life in MarTech, but pretty much sector agnostic. We're working with two ed tech companies, a retail tech company right now, and a MarTech company, um, as an example. Um, problems they're trying to solve. Uh, so, so, so that's the sort of the sector in mm. terms of in terms of size. Um, they're all um, two of them are between seed and Series A. Um, so they're sort of doing that sort of between 600 and 800K uh, a year in revenue. And then two of them are doing upwards of one and a half million in revenue. Um, and, and the other one's doing, you know, 10 million in revenue, as an example. So we've got, you know, we've got a, a sort of a mix across across the, across the uh, all of them. The earlier stage companies are looking for us to help them with a full kind of strategy, um, you know, growth strategy, growth planning to help them get to that you know, that series A, that million plus ARR, uh, annual recurring revenue. Um, and for them, it's very much, you know, we look at strategy, we look at structure, organizational structure, we might look at culture and values, or we might touch on culture and values in some areas. And a lot of it's kind of, you know, revenue focused, um, and revenue strategy focused, there might be an area where that business might have worked, might have realized that they're a data business, because what they do is essentially creating a whole load of data. And they might need some help around how do they validate that data or how can they create a business model around that data. And that's a sort of early stage piece. Um, the, the later stage companies, you know, it's typically uh, we get asked to look at a specific area. So it might be pricing, um, which is sort of my specialist subject. And I, I love <laughs> I think pricing is an area that is very undervalued. And if you get it right, you can massively differentiate. So pricing could be an area, it could be revenue strategy. Um, it could just be marketing, messaging and positioning. You know, or it could be, as I said, you know, they've made an acquisition and they need some help with sort of post-merger integration um, from an operational standpoint. So those are the types of those are the types of projects. You know, as I said, we're sort of now agnostic a little bit um, of sector, um, but you know, we, we sort of come from the marketing world fundamentally. Mm, really fascinating. Just on that pricing piece, I mm-hmm. totally agree with you. Pricing is undervalued in business. Um, I, I read a great book from. Blair ends recently um, pricing creativity, where he talked about the importance of sort of pricing effectively being positioning. You know, where you pitch your pricing essentially positions you in the market as much as any branding and uh, sort of other positioning work that you do. Talk about some of the things that people take for granted when it comes to pricing, and how are you helping your customers? better price their products and services so that they're able to capture their value effectively well you you make a, you, the, the, the second last the second last word you said there was value um so a lot of a lot of SaaS businesses a lot of technology businesses um when it comes to pricing a lot of them think features and they think users um which is typically how salesforce would have priced but you know salesforce were the first ones to do that because they were around 20 odd years ago um, and I think if you, as the world has moved forward now, there's a lot more businesses that are focused around what I would call value-based pricing. Um, mm. And that really comes back to what is the value that you as a system or a software system are providing to your customer base. Um, and if you're able to link your pricing to the value that you're driving, and if you think about in the sort of the marketing world, you used to talk about cost per acquisition, right? Where essentially you're basically pricing based on an outcome. Mm. Effectively, value-based pricing is essentially 
taking it goes along a similar premise. It's like where where what are the levers that currently exist in your business um, that which which are linked to your cost effectively. Use those levers to essentially create a pricing model that is driven by value. Um, so you're not limiting because in a lot of cases sometimes uh, entrepreneurs I find will limit um, limit capability. So when it comes to saying right, okay, we're going to price in tier one, tier two, and tier three. Um, so tier one has this basic level of, of this, and, and then it will will add an additional feature into tier two, and then we'll add an additional feature into tier three, and so on and so forth. And what that does is actually, in certain instances, you're limiting the effectiveness of your product. Mm. Um, and what we've done in a couple of instances, well, recently, is actually started to take started to help entrepreneurs understand um, the value that they that they're driving, and start to say, right, well, price based on value. So create almost like a universal metric that basically allows you to then work with any type of customer, keeps it really, really simple and breaks everything down to one one key driver of value or one or two key drivers of value um, that allows your business to then scale. Because then if you couple that with effectively a playbook of how you get customers from 10 to 100, um, yeah, that's what investors want to see. Investors know that there's a, the deal cycle in SaaS is, you know, can be three to six months. Um, it's, it can be quite a long deal cycle. So what they want to understand is how do you turn 10 into, how do you get a client in paying you 10 and how do you make them pay you 100 inside 12 months or inside two years? Uh, and that's where if you, pri- if you get your pricing right and you have a really strong customer success framework behind that, you will, that that's essentially the, that's the stepping stones to get you to where you want to be. Really interesting. Let's let's talk about COVID nineteen and, and this environment that we all find ourselves in. Um, in. In this environment, you know where we live and work has obviously been fundamentally changed, as we all know. But it, it creates tremendous opportunities for those entrepreneurs who can spot an opportunity and quickly bring a product or a service to market. Who have been some of the biggest winners and losers, in your opinion, in tech in the last few months, and what did they do? that their competition didn't? What opportunity they, did they spot that their competition didn't? Oh, that's a good question. I think there's a lot of, um, I think it's been, there's been, there's a lot of businesses that after the first sort of shock, the first shock of the first two months, um, sort of post lockdown in March, um, took stock uh, and realized that actually this potentially was almost a bit like a natural reset. Um, and it almost and it opened up um, a whole host of different opportunities. So there's one business uh, that I know of that worked in the hospitality space, um, a business called Toggle. Um, really like you know great founder, really good business. And what they effectively did is they pivoted their hospitality gift carding and couponing business, and actually pivoted that towards a track and trace system for hospitality. Oh. Um, okay. And you look at it now, and you think, "Wow, well, genius! Genius!" Yeah. And what they effectively did is they gave away their track and trace system. But they managed to sign up 360 retailers uh, on track and trace on this track and trace system, which then has now opened up a pipeline of 360 customers that, when we come back, have already have felt warm and cuddly about them. Yeah. <laughs> Effectively, are now a potential pipeline of new customers. And I look at I th- when I see stories of that, and you know, this is a business that does less than a million a year in revenue, and I think, wow, to be able mm-hmm. to think that quickly and move that fast. Um, to then, you know, to then, you know, to, to release a product that, you know, like that, I think that's um, that's you know, that's staggering. I think there's a number of other businesses uh, in the creative space that have, you know, doubled down on technology and taken this opportunity to say, right, well, what we'll do is we'll we'll double down on our technology because we think technology is where 
because because we're moving to remote remote working um you know agencies aren't going to operate like they like they did 12 months ago 18 months ago um we're going to move we're going to move into a different type of working and different type of era so let's pivot our business towards technology and become enablers um and there's two or three businesses in that in you know in that space that have started to start to look at that i think you know the likes of s4 i think you know you, you know just seen i've just seen the uh, the update this morning and you think you know they've they've grown phenomenally well in the last you know last two years but you know they've made some really smart acquisitions um and they've got some uh, they've got a really good culture um around what they're trying to do um and some of their acquisitions are really you know are, are, are gonna make give them a really good base to, to to kind of really significantly scale and disrupt even more from and, and um, suspense by the way what was the update this morning from s4 uh their quarter their, their, their growth this quarter um, huh. which was uh what was it i can't try to think what it was impressive uh, Impressive, yeah. It was just a great another another great quarter, twenty three percent like for like growth, which is pretty good. Mm-hmm. They've obviously made a bunch of different acquisitions, which I think again, you know, just again just talks to you know, talks to you know, Mr. Sorrell has a uh, has a has a has a great knack for doing this. It's not like mm-hmm. he hasn't done it before. I think there's also you'll see traditional businesses as well. So you know the likes of Shutterstock, for example, uh, and some of business, you know, some of these Getty Images, some of these businesses that are now starting to to look at how they how those businesses evolve. You know, I was involved with the Getty family, you know, the Getty Getty images and the Getty family back back in my days at Crook Info. Um, and I, you know, looking at them now and looking at the types of acquisitions that they're looking and making, um, and and the, and the sort of the moves that they're starting to make in the creative space. I think that that's you know that's again, you know, a really you know that's going to be. I think it's a watch this space um, for the creative the creative industry now because things like VR and AR. You know, we've been talking about VR and AR for ages, but actually, COVID mm. could well have could well could, could well be that watershed moment because I'm not sure we're going to buy cars like we used to. I'm not sure we're going to buy houses in the same way that we used to either. You know, the things like VR and AR are they going to is that going to come into play in a slightly different way? Um, what do you, what do you think on that on on that by the way? Because I mean, one of the reasons why Google Glass didn't really take off in the way that it expected to was because they underestimated the fact that people are sensitive about what they put on their face from a fashion perspective, just from a, hey, look at me perspective. And it didn't really do wonders for people's kind of street cred wearing the Google Glass. And it's a similar thing for uh, VR, right? You know, I think people are underestimating the role that uh, sort of fashion plays in a lot of these things. So are we really going to see the rapid adoption of VR and I, I, I'm hearing investors being a lot more bullish on AR um, but VR even though it has amazing applications maybe from a fashion point of view it's not it's not as great yeah I think I think that's fair I think part of it is also you know Google Glass was what three four years ago something longer like I think yeah maybe even longer um, mm-hmm. time's flown uh, but if you look back at it you think actually you know they were a bit early um, the, sure. I think that what's happened now is the rails are being created. Um, it's the same as you know, same in the payment space, right? You know, again, you know, with things like Apple Pay and all of these things. You, th- you know, you look at how how we've all suddenly in COVID, we just adopted that whole process really, really quickly. Sure. Um, and lots of people didn't have it set up, and suddenly thought the idea of touching anything and all that, I can just you know, you know, use my use my. Phone. So all of those things, I think, um, you know, the rails have now been created. 
for both VR and, and AR. And I think that you know the next two years, you know, Apple are supposedly launching some they're launching eyewear in you know eighteen months time. Um, so I think you're going to start to see a lot of businesses that kind of create themselves around that ecosystem because the rails are being created. Uh, yeah. you know, the payments, the payment space in fintech is a you know great example. Um, you look at some of the innovations that are coming out of Africa, for example. Um, you will have seen, um, you know, there's there's been some you know, interesting moves uh, in in that space where you know the likes of WellPay and, and various others, Mastercard, are making you know significant acquisitions. Um, and you know, I think that's a that's a really that, that's an area that you know I don't think we should underestimate um, because uh, I think there's a lot. You know, everyone historically, and you know, being from Africa myself, historically people mm. go, yeah, well, you know, payment rails and it's this and that. But you know, everyone forgets that Africa jumped straight to mobile. Um, sure. And the number of people in Africa that are and the and the population of Africa is you know twenty on average twenty five. You know, to mm. sit there and say the technology has not been tested or there's not enough scale to prove it, um, that you know that that doesn't that doesn't um, hold up anymore. There is there are you know Nigeria is one of the biggest mobile markets in the world, mm. um, and actually if you can make tech work out, work over there, then why wouldn't it work in this market? You know, you, all you have to look at you know I don't know if you saw um, Nigeria's uh, fintech called Paystack. Um, they got acquired by Stripe for two hundred million. Huh. Um, you know, that's the first big acquisition from a Western company into Africa, uh, and that's the, that's the first of many because there are a whole load of good companies like that um, in in that space. Really fascinating sign of things to come. Clearly, uh, let, let's talk a little bit about valuing a business. Um, if an investor is looking to acquire or buy assets in a SaaS business or creative business, how do they even begin to do that? Valuation is one of those areas. Valuation is always an interesting one for me. Um, there are, you know, having sat and advised a couple of early stage funds on their uh, on their investments, I, I've, I was always, it was about three years ago, I looked at it, I thought, valuation, you know, that, that's interesting. I don't really, I, so I sort of spent a lot of time researching it and trying to get my head around it. Um, you know, typical typical valuations are normally linked to revenue, uh, linked to EBITDA, um, and that's that's fine in sort of service based businesses. Um, I think you know predominantly a lot, of, a lot of tech founders will always look to try and peg their uh, their valuation to to some kind of revenue. Um, a lot of it depends on the type of acquirer. Some acquirers like to basically strip everything back uh, and net everything down and actually reduce the overall you know, revenue or or margin um, and actually try and make it you know reduce the valuation, especially if they're acquiring it. Um, I, I because we've got a CTO in our in our midst and I work closely with Steve. Um, a lot of what we do is we'll look at it. We'll look at any technology and we'll we'll take the basis and say, right, um, what would it cost to build that technology? So let's talk about valuing a business. If an investor or an acquirer is looking to buy either a SaaS business or a creative business, how do they even begin? to do that because often they're looking for quite different things when it comes to SaaS and creative businesses. Yeah. So I think, you know, valuation is always that, that key, you know, is, is a really interesting question because it depends really on the type of acquirer you are. Um, so lots of different acquirers will have different models and different ways that they feel comfortable acquiring, acquiring companies. Some will prefer, you know, to not have earnouts and try and take, you know, especially on the technology side, just it, just consume the technology, have a very short period where they just transfer the technology and the IP over, and then the founders disappear. 
Others will prefer others. Other technologies that are partly proven will need the. They will have more of a sort of back end deal where the founders come into the business for two or three years and prove out value and actually make more money on the um, while they're in the company rather than on the front end. Um, but really, for me, it's there's kind of there's two there's three things really. Obviously, revenue is one area that everyone, you know, especially on the technology side, um, revenue is really is is a, is a kind of key. Um, a key, a key area to, to look at. Um, but I think for me, a lot of businesses, on the special on the tech side where, you know, things like profit and EBITDA, a lot of these tech businesses aren't profitable. Um, so what, what I like to try and do is go beyond the financials um, and actually start to look at things like geography, uh, start to looking at the team, start to look at the actual capability. So what is the capability of this technology? And how can we, how will that extend our capability if I'm a bigger acquirer? If, I, if, we, if we were to, Acquire this this team or tuck this tuck this um, acquisition into our business. Um, what is the capability that this will allow us to to to, uh, to deliver over the course of the next three years? Mm. Um, there are a couple of there's a couple of deals that I'm working on right now with a couple of pretty big acquirers. I mean, this is a, this is a very small um, very small technology, um, but what they've realised is actually it will significantly enhance. Uh, their revenue and a significant enhance the capability in because they've got a field sales team of 1500 people and if you take if you take this technology and 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 and, uh, and put it into this into a bigger organization um, with a big with a better structure um, around revenue it will significantly increase its value so looking at things that are not obviously the financials are really important but looking slightly beyond the financials and starting to look at you know what would it cost to actually build this technology um, from scratch mm. inside 12 months um, that's always a question that you know i know that steve when we talk about valuations um, of technology businesses that's the way that i that we, that's the sort of method that we come up with and we always, we always look at it and say right what would it cost with and then you add a multiple you add some kind of premium on to say well this founder say built it over three years and has iterated over the course of three years as the markets changed as environments changed so if we're if we're able to say right it's going to cost a million pounds to basically to, to build this from scratch, add a 25, 30% premium on for any iterations and any kind of market research and market shifts that have been factored in over those three years. And then you get to a, te- a base technology valuation, and then you can add in all the other financial as- aspects to it as well, especially on the tech side. I, I like to start with the technology first um, and then look at adding in all the other all the other aspects to it as well. And then, the, then there's that sort of intangible piece around the founders because, you know, and I've spent lots of time with US VCs and they always talk about, you know, they've always seen great technology, um, great technology and average team lose all day long over good technology, great team. Um, hmm. So that goes back to your kind of techno, that goes back to your culture and values piece. Sure. Um, so it's, you know, evaluations, you know, ultimately it's, you know, some people say it's, you know, it's worth what someone's willing to pay for it, admittedly. But I think in terms of being able to, you know, add a little bit of both the tangible and the intangible to it. I think it's a really, um, especially on tech businesses, um, I think that's where you get those sort of outlier type uh, valuations. I mean, who would have mm. thought that Datarama would have been bought for 33 times revenue um, by Salesforce? But it was part of a capability hole that Salesforce had. So they had to make that acquisition um, because it, it, and, but inside that business, it makes a, you know, it will significantly enhance their capability within their stack. And opens up a whole bunch of different conversations uh, that they weren't able to have, as an example. You you recently announced a, a joint venture with Waypoint Partners. Um, yeah. They are a world class M and A advisory and, and growth advisory as well. 
why did it make sense for Vogel and uh, Waypoint to join join forces? By the way, we've had many of their partners on the podcast so far, and they're excellent. Okay, fantastic. Um, that's good. Well, I think well, obviously you've had a lot of their partners on the call. So, um, so I was, you know, I've, I've known Jim um, a couple of years, and I thought I've always been impressed with with Jim. Um, and I think that as a, you know, I think there's there's quite a, there's you know for us. Um, what we bring is essentially the technology expertise, but not just that, not just an understanding of technology, but also the operational uh, expertise. So knowing a lot of the operational partners uh, within the potential acquirers uh, mm. on the technology side. Uh, and what Waypoint bring is, you know, significant amounts of experience on the M&A process. Uh, and, that's, and I guess what I would call M&A machinery um, to essentially help um you know, take a lot of the work that we a lot of a lot of the knowledge that we've got around around the industry around around the operators to really provide um, an end to end for uh, for customers. And I think what we found, what I found when I was talking to Jim, was we sort of we were pretty aligned on on the sort of sweet spot um, in that technology space. You know, there are a lot of businesses that are doing between five million and fifteen million, twenty million in revenue, um, and that market's really underserved right now. Um, and a lot of those businesses. Are significantly um, are very interesting to potential acquirers because they are those um, those types of businesses that may not necessarily be profitable today or are nearing profitability, but they are they're going to add significant value to those businesses over the course you know to the bigger acquirers uh, over the course of the next you know three or four years. So being able to sort of be aligned around the the areas that we feel that there was a, that there was a, an opportunity. But also, I think coupling our technology experience uh, and their M and A experience um, was a really big factor in, in, in that partnership. Hmm. Really, really fascinating. Last, last couple of questions before we get into our favourite questions at the end of the show, a bead that we ask all of our guests. Um, even though we've seen a lot of progress in recent years in diversity and inclusion, um, not only ethnic diversity but um, gender diversity as well, it's still isn't enough at the highest levels of leadership in creative businesses as well. And and we know that 2020 has shown a a, a harsh spotlight on that across all industries, but we know that the creative services sector also has an issue there. Also is enough being done? What more can be done? And are you happy with the, the pace of the progress? I think is enough. So we're getting there. Things are starting to, things are moving faster. Um, and I, I wonder if COVID is a ca- again a catalyst for a lot of these things. As a sort of, as, you know, I, I viewed it as a bit of a natural reset, and I think that it's it's shone a light on a, on a bunch of things. Um, so I think for me, uh, it's things are happening, probably not as quick as I'd like them to happen, um, but things are moving. I think diversity. You know, we talked about gender um, a lot um, and have done over the last four or five years. Um, I think um, race. Is also a, a really key, uh, a really key part, um, and I think that's that's an area that um, you know Black Lives Matter and all of that has, has again shone a light on in the last you know the last six months and and, and and previously. But I think that's an area that that we need to that that needs a bit more acceleration. Um, mm. I think that's that for me that's the area that we're slightly lagging behind. I think is on the sort of on on the race the, the race area. Mm. Definitely. Couldn't agree more. Let's hope that things change. And and I think they are slowly, uh, but probably not fast enough for many people's uh, liking. Um, Let's get into our favorite questions now. These are the questions that I ask all of my guests. So I'm really excited to ask you 
some of them as well. This is like, who is the man behind the brand sort of question. <laughs> so getting to know you a bit more. Uh, tell us about a time when you failed and what you learned from the experience. Yeah, God, when did I fail? Um, I fail all the time. Um, I think I'm lucky that I've worked most of my career in startups. Uh, so I think a lot of my, you know, a lot of my, found, a lot of the businesses I've worked for, bosses I've worked for, recognise that I like to move quite quickly. Um, mm. And sometimes, yeah, I do. I do move too fast. Um, and I've, I mean, there's almost too many times to count. I've moved, you know, moved too fast, and sometimes have failed to bring people with me. Uh, mm. and actually what I've learned over the years is, and I, and I, and I actually, it's funny because when I see people in startups that, uh, that have that type of, um, behavior, a lot, a lot of the time I say, you remind me of me, um, mm. you need to slow down and you need to bring people with you. So I think, you know, I've, i there's so many offers, there's so many times that I've, you know, I've almost, my brain is going to be thinking, you know, 10 steps ahead when everyone else is sort of three steps ahead. Mm. Um, and I think what I've had to do is what I've learned now is how to identify that um how to slow down uh take stock a little bit and then go back and bring people with me on that journey really interesting the mentors question who who tell us about some of your favorite mentors people that influenced your own personal development journey your own career journey um tell us who influenced your career so i think so you know obviously i started in the city uh, so moving from being in the city to, to marketing and media, you know, that's a, as you, you know, as you sort of pointed out at the start, it's a jump, right? And someone has to take a chance on you. Um, that person was Alex Chamberlain, um, who is, you know, he's a good friend now. He was my sales director at Crick Info. I knew, I knew when I went in to interview him that he wasn't, that I wasn't the person he was looking for because I didn't have any agency experience. In fact, I didn't even know what a media agency was. Um, <laughs> good start. So, but I, I sort of had to, I almost, you know, he took a chance on me on the basis that I played cricket and I understood. <laughs> um, and it's, it's, it's true. I'll, 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 I'll never forget that. I'll never forget that interview um, where I know, you know he said to me, I, you know, you're clearly not the right the person that I'm looking for. And I said, I'll tell you what, pay me, pay me less than you were, than you're offered than, than, than the jobs um, being advertised at. And if in three months I deliver, you can pay me five grand more than what the job's been offered. offered. Brilliant. And, you know, in fairness to him, he took a chance on me. Um, so Alex has been, you know, he's a good friend. And for me, I think he he's the re- one of the core reasons I'm here today. Um, yeah. I think Tim Brown um, is someone as well. Um, I've always looked up to him. You know, he was at Blue Lithium. Uh, you know, I, I, I sit on his board at, at Fiducia. I think, you know, he's just, he's a very good operator. He's very detail-oriented um, and he's very good. You know, he's, he's helped me a lot. In just again, you know, if, I, if I go back to your question around, you know, times that I failed, times that I've moved too fast, um, Tim's very good at sort of that. Has that big calming influence. Um, the other person for me is uh, Ben Chilcott, um, who's you know he's actually the reason why you know we're partner with, you know, with Waypoint. He's a you know good friend of both Jim and I's, um, but he's a brilliant networker. Um, and what he's taught me is the power of behind relationships. Um, and I think, you know, someone like him has been, you know, he's been absolutely instrumental, uh, in my career. The power of behind relationships. Sorry, the, the power of relationships, the power oh, behind, right. power behind relationships. I see. Sorry. I see. Um, oh. Gone. And the last person, I mean, the, 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 obviously the last, and the last kind of the key, another key person is, uh, Gina Garubo. Um, mm. and she, Gina, I've known for a long time. Uh, she is the CEO of NPR uh, in the US. Um, right. 
Wow. Gina, CEO of Revenue. So she's been, you know, she's been in the media industry a long time. Uh, I actually met her in Cannes at a lunch uh, about 10 years ago. Um, and she's been, you know, she's always been a really good sort of sage guide. Um, you know, when I've been you know, in between roles or when I've been thinking about a new role, uh, she's always been able to give me that, you know, give me a really good view um, from both sides. Mm. Um, and she's helped me significantly with the sort of the US. You know, I've done a lot of my work is, has been historically with the US. She's helped me really kind of you know, maximize that uh, that network and that, you know, and, and, and understand understand how best to, to operate in, uh, in, that, in the upper echelons of that uh, of that space. Really interesting. The, the books question, tell us about some of your favorite books. What books do you reread regularly? What books are you reading now? What books have been instrumental in the way that you think about your own career? Um, well, I think the, the, there's a book that I get all the, um, well, I try and get all my startup um, clients to read, which is uh, The Hard Thing About the Hard Things. Ah, ben Horowitz. Um, yeah, Ben Horowitz, who's a bit of a hero of mine. Um, it was given to me by a, um, a VC of mine. Um, and that's, that, that I, sort of, that's a core book I read over and mm-hmm. over again. Mm-hmm. Uh, I really like that book. Um, Classic. It's a classic book. Um, there's a there's a there's a, a book, very old management book that I think my dad gave me to read once upon a time called uh, "In Pursuit of Wow" or "The Pursuit of Wow," which was a Tom okay. Tom Peters book. Um, right. And there's some really interesting. Uh, there's it's one of the one of the uh, first management books that I read of his, which was actually quite easy to consume and just kind of flip back and open the <laughs> and go, oh, "I'm going to learn something," rather than having to read a whole load of text. Yeah. Um, so those are kind of two two sort of management books. Obviously, yeah. my sporting background uh, lends me to you know I, I love for me um, some sporting autobiographies. Um, so okay, quite a few. You know, I've read almost all of the ones that are people that I'm uh, that I admire. I think there's a great tell book. us some of your favourites. Well, I think the um, what sport teaches us about life is a really right. good book. It's written by a guy called Ed Smith, uh, who is the England. Uh, head of uh, chairman of selectors um, mm. and he's written another book called luck as well which is also very very good mm. and then matthew syed um i've got he's got he, uh, two of his books that i kind of reread quite a lot one is bounce um bounce, yeah. which if you haven't read is fantastic and the other one is the greatest sat by my bed right now which i sort of read pages from as and when um but those are those are the those are the, the kind of those are the books that i I go to, and then, you know, really for me, it's sort of, you know, things that are, you know, related to sport and business. Yeah. Uh, I read a lot of. Great recommendations. Amazon Prime or Netflix, what are you watching or streaming that's good? Depends what, depends, depends what, what I'm in the mood for. So uh, Netflix, things, obviously things like Narcos and Ozark and, you know, mm-hmm. and, um, and Suits and, and things like that, which mm-hmm. are quite easy to watch. Um, my wife keeps making me watch The Crown, which is interesting. But, uh, <laughs> I think it's fascinating. I think The Crown is brilliant. I mean, it is fascinating. It's just, um, you know, I guess it's a bit slower than Narcos. <laughs> <laughs> just, just a bit. Just a bit. Um, I think Amazon Prime, I love the all or nothing stuff on Amazon Prime. Um, yeah. I think that's brilliant. And I really yeah. love um, some of the sporting stuff, you know, sporting documentaries. There was one recently on Richie McCaw, um, mm. another one on Daniel Carter. Um, I think, you know, as a rugby fan, New Zealand rugby, I think, you know, the, his, again, I use a lot of their lessons when it comes to talking to startups. You know, a lot of what they've done around culture and values and building the, you know, the anatomy of a winning team. Uh, and all of that, I think that comes out really well in, in the All or Nothing um, series that you see on Amazon. Um, mm. so all of that, 
Um, as a Spurs fan, I'm currently watching the uh, the Jose Mourinho, oh, okay. um, which is interesting. Like it? <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. It's a it's a it's an interesting view behind the man. Um, I think you kind of everyone has a lot of their own preset ideas around Mourinho, mm. um, but it's interesting to get a slightly different view. Um, you know, I think I'm I kind of I'm, I keep saying this will be the year. This will be the year. <laughs> Hey, who knows? I mean, Southampton are top of the league, right? Well, exactly. I'm saying nothing right now, but um, yeah, we uh, we keep we keep being a bit too Spursy for my liking. But uh, there you go. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> what what do you do to keep mentally and physically fit? Um, play sport. So I've played lots and lots. You know, for me at the moment, fractured ankle. I can't play a lot of sport. I can't run. So I'm sort of. Uh, climbing the walls and driving everyone in the house completely crazy so at the moment i'm kind of restricted to pilates and yoga which is fine um so i'm doing a bit of that um normally uh, still play competitive cricket still play competitive hockey golf so can't wait for lockdown to be over to start and ankle to be fixed to be able to play um play that again i can imagine that lockdown and covid is the worst time to be a sportsman people like you it's just driving you know it's just it's the worst thing to be indoors yeah. and not be able to be active. Yeah, absolutely. It is. A, it's a very difficult. Uh, yeah, it's just hard. Um, yeah. And because I'm because I'm not moving, I'm, well, I'm kind of in the house the whole time. Um, my office has just been knocked down because it was rotten. It's being rebuilt at the moment. So uh, at the back of the garden. So unfortunately, uh, I'm sat in the dining room driving my wife mad. Um, <laughs> but I don't really have yeah that sort of separation. Being able to just go right. I'm going for a run. See you later. Sure. Uh, is very is very difficult to do. So hopefully two weeks two weeks time and I'll be able to yeah. run in a straight line again. Great, great stuff. Uh, what advice would you give to a young person or a millennial that wants to start their career in the creative agency space? I think it's you know for me the most important thing is humility. Um, you know I think humility. Be humble. Be curious. Uh, it sounds like a cliche, but don't you know, you know be a good person to work with to work to be around, um, I think those are the most important things because if you can do that, that'll kind of set you up from an attitude standpoint and people will see that you're willing to learn, um, see that you're not shy, you're not frightened of, of hard work and, and, the, and, and, and think that yeah, if, you, that's the, if, was, if that was the, if that was a piece of advice that my dad gave me quite a long time ago um, when, I was, when I was at university and I was sort of doing work experience to sort of try and prove my worth. And I'll you know, be humble. Um, I think that's a really important thing. Remember where you came from um, and, and just be very humble. Really interesting. And, and my final question, Abid, what does it know about the world of M&A, tech, SaaS, agency world today that you wish you knew at the very beginning of your career i think it's the same as anything in sort of i look back and i think you know we love to use three-letter acronyms and we love all of this stuff um and i look back at it and i think i always thought m&a was like really complicated and really difficult and i look back at it now that i'm in it i think it's not that difficult it's Mm. just it's just about understanding a process and i think I sometimes wish that, and same as advertising, you know, understanding the process. And if you can, if if I look back now and I think if I if I just spent a bit of time trying to understand that process, uh, I probably wouldn't have been. It probably wouldn't have felt such a big leap to try and get into it. Mm. Great place to end. Love that, Abid. Thank you so much for doing this. Thank you so much, Nathan. That's been brilliant. I've really enjoyed talking to you. We have been speaking with Abid Jan Mohammed. He is currently the founder and director of Vogel, 
If you enjoyed this conversation, then head over to Apple Podcasts where you can listen to over 100 such conversations we've had now with world-class leaders in sales and marketing. Thank you for all your feedback and suggestions on LinkedIn and email. Write to me at Nathan at agencydealmasters.com. Please head over to iTunes and leave us a review. Follow me on Twitter at Nathan Anibaba. We would be unable to do this show without our very own deal masters. Ahmed Ahmed is our editor. Christoph Blaschek is our booker slash project manager. Marion Begum is our head of research. I'm Nathan Anibaba. You've been listening to Agency Deal Masters. Mm-hmm.